in the second chapter of the book of Acts, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he brought the Jews to a point of faith, point of belief. They asked the question of Peter, what should we do? And Peter responded and instructed them to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. One thing we tend to maybe overlook in this account of the conversion of the 3,000 is that he continued to speak to them. That's not all he said. He also said in verse 39 that the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. But then he said in verse 40, he, with many other words, solemnly testified, and he kept on exhorting them, saying, to be saved from this perverse generation. When you see that phrase, perverse generation, what goes through your mind? The word perverse could be variously translated. It carries with it the idea of being corrupt. It carries with it the idea of an untoward generation or a crooked generation. Jesus used that word himself during the course of his ministry to refer to the lack of faith, the lack of belief that he was the Son of God. And when you consider the fact that on this particular day, that is, the day of Pentecost, there would have been upwards of a million Jews assembled and only 3,000 responded, that might have been in the mind of the Holy Spirit as he led Peter to speak these words as well that this was a crooked, a corrupt, a perverse, an unbelieving generation. Now, when we see the word perverse, other thoughts come into our minds. We think of, for lack of a better way of saying it, the pervert. We want to associate some type of immorality with that particular term. And I think that's appropriate. I, I think if you look at a crooked, corrupt, untoward generation, it could be described as not just unbelieving, but it could be described in other ways as well. In fact, I think the perversions that one might see in society are the result of an unwillingness to believe. They didn't believe in Jesus. Well, they didn't believe in God either. In fact, Jesus said that if you believed in the Father, you would believe in me. I was sent by the Father. I have proven myself to be the Son of God. And so he could describe them as a crooked and perverse generation. Now, where are we going to go with this? Well, when you think about our society, when you think about our culture, when you think about the direction of our nation, and this is not about politics. This is about our environment, regardless of which nation of which we might be a citizen, we still step back and we look at the world of which we are a part and ask ourselves the question, well, is this a, a perverse generation? Is it an unbelieving generation? Is it a corrupt generation or a corrupt society? Many would say yes. When you look at the direction, when you look at the things that, that seem to be coming into our society at, at such a rapid pace, it almost makes your head spin. When, when you look at things that are being accepted now that were not accepted five years ago, ten years ago, especially 
20 or 30 years ago, all we hear now is about evil. And we see that, that men are wanting to drive us in a certain direction. And so we're, we're finding ourselves in, in, in a time when we really are coming into conflict with, with the world. We've always been in conflict with the world. But it's becoming even more evident with the passing of time. As I think about this, this perverse generation, or as it might be described, a perverse generation... I look at certain things that I see being accepted now. It's almost being accepted to the point that we're being led to believe that this is just normal behavior. And if you don't see this as normal behavior, then you're the outlier. You're the abnormal one. And I think as a child of God, what I have to, what I have to, to reach into my heart and, and pull out is... Whether I'm normal or abnormal really doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not I'm holding to the truth and whether or not I'm acceptable to God. So when it comes to, to issues such as homosexuality or same-sex marriage, what do I believe on that? Well, my belief isn't based on my politics. It's not based on what... Uh, philosophy would lead me to believe it's it's simply based on what the scriptures teach when i look at the book of genesis for example and i see that that marriage is a god-ordained relationship it's described in very simple terms in galatians 2 excuse me genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh there's the bible's definition of marriage it's a man and it's a woman it's not a man and a man it's not a woman and a woman it's a man and it's a woman do you accept that or do you reject that does it really matter what society says about it does it really matter what human philosophy wants us to think about that what really matters if you're a child of God is what the Bible teaches about that. In Galatians chapter 1, we may ask the question then, well, what about not just same-sex marriage, but what about homosexuality? And you really can't separate the two. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, when Paul was describing the corruption, the degradation of society, of the Gentile pagan mind, he wrote this. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now he's describing the mind that does not know God. He's describing a crooked and perverse and unbelieving generation that refuses to have a knowledge of God and accept the things that are taught by God. This generation does not accept Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. It does not accept one man, one woman for life. 
this generation that's being described that God gave over to degrading passions is one that accepted, that embraced homosexuality, same-sex marriage. Now, do you need more scripture than that? What about transgenderism? What does the Bible teach about it? You know, trans, transgenderism as it exists in our time was not even possible during Bible times. And what I mean by that is that in our time, there is science, there, there is medication, there are means which would allow a man to develop female characteristics and vice versa with regard to the female. But the idea is found in the scriptures. You go back to the book of Genesis and you read in verse 22 a very clear statement. And again, they, they had a, a limitation insofar as what they could actually do. But, but we read that a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. He's not referring to the, the uh, you know, the little boy who happens to have five sisters who dress him up like a girl one day and he has no clue what's going on. He's referring to adult males and females who have a desire to look like the opposite sex. I've heard some argue that based on this passage, a, a woman can't wear pants. Well, I don't take that view. If a woman's wearing pants because she wants to look like a man, then that's wrong. But women can wear pants and still look, look like women. Now, I'm not sure men can wear dresses <laughs> unless you're playing the bagpipes and, and still look like men. You, you, you see the point that, that I'm making. The, the problem is with the desire to want to appear to be the opposite sex. Well, that's, that's the, uh, the seed or the germ of transgenderism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, in writing of the church at Corinth, he makes reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, not only to homosexuals in verse 9, the last term in that particular verse, but if you look at the word before it, it's the effeminate. And that's the effeminate, the New American Standard rendering, the translation and the marginal rendering is effeminate by perversion. Well, again, that's the desire to look like the opposite sex. It's the desire to act like the opposite sex. And again, I'll just have to say that, that we all know men who have maybe feminine qualities. Well, that doesn't make them a homosexual. It, it doesn't make them an effeminate person. Some men just have more effeminate qualities. Some women have more masculine qualities than most other women. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a desire. We have to be careful as Christians not to prejudge people based on certain outward appearances. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this, this is a sin. And then also, by the way, I, I should have said this earlier. 
I can teach you everything the Bible teaches on homosexuality, transgenderism, and abortion, which are three of the, the hot issues that we, we've heard about in the last several years in less than 10 minutes. These are not complicated Bible subjects. The subject of predestination is far more complicated than the subjects of homosexuality, transgenderism, or abortion. The subject of once saved, always saved is more complicated than these particular subjects. Even the subject of baptism, as simple and as clear forward as the scriptures are on that matter, is really more complicated than these matters. Any child of God should be able to take, as I've done here, six verses of scripture or less and address these subjects. So you have to marvel as a child of God, why is there so much debate on this? Well, it's because those who are debating in favor of these so-called alternative or acceptable ways of life aren't arguing from Scripture. You know, they may say well, something like, well, the Bible no longer applies or, or the Bible is no longer relevant for our day, our time. Well, that's a completely different study, isn't it? That's a completely different matter. And, and you can take all the Scripture in the world and put before that person. And until they believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that, it, that we're going to be judged by that Word, all that Scripture is not going to matter. You, you can take all the human reasoning and the human arguments that are available. You can pull science into the discussion. You can pull common sense and logic into the discussion. But until they're willing to accept that God is the Creator, that we are the creation, that He is the potter and we are the clay, and we are to be subject to his laws, all that discussion is, is really pointless. But what about abortion? Well, abortion is murder. You know, we, we, we like to call it something different. Abortion. We're going to abort. It's time to abort. Well, that, that's a word that we think of when we're going on a mission. Let's abort the mission. We're going to put an end to something. Well, it's murder. Because it's the taking of human life. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. What do we read about those who are going to be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death? We read about those who are cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. But murderers, those who put an end to human life, they're guilty of sin. And the question then becomes, well, when does life begin? Life begins at the point of conception. Why do we really have to debate that? In the book of Galatians, Paul makes reference to his call as an apostle. And he writes in Galatians 1 and verse 15 that even from my mother's womb, God called me. Well, then you can get into all these discussions, maybe technical in nature. At what point in his womb did God call him? Well, that, that wasn't even in the mind of the apostle as he wrote this. He's just saying that it was God's plan for his life that he become an apostle. And life began in his mother's womb. You end that life, then you commit murder. As we see around us what is being accepted, what we do see is a crooked, untoward, corrupt, 
and perverse generation. So we go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, and we see the statement of Peter as he's leading them to a point of obedience to the gospel, and he tells them to be saved from that generation. Well, when you obey the gospel, to the extent that there may have been some of this thinking or maybe even behavior in your past, you can be saved from it. But even if that is not a part of your past, it can still influence the way you think. Culture can influence the way we as Christians think. And what we as Christians need to realize and need to remember is that culture is not the standard of truth. It is not to serve as the basis of, of my behavior. Let's be saved from this perverse generation. Let's talk about salvation from a perverse generation. A part of the, the solution here is just simply awareness. If you want to be a safe driver, what, what do the experts tell us? You need to be aware of your surroundings. Whether you're flying an airplane or driving a car or a motorcycle or a boat or some other type of personal watercraft, you need to be aware of your surroundings. If you want to be saved from danger, you need to open your eyes and you need to see that danger. Look at what God spoke of the, the nation of Israel, the generation of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Culture wants to change our thinking. Culture wants us to think that these forms of behavior are acceptable. And if you hear that long enough, you can be influenced by it. Experts tell us that if you hear a lie long enough, you'll start to believe it. Well, you've, you've got to combat the lie with the truth. In James chapter 4, when James was writing about becoming unfaithful, he said of those to whom he wrote, he, he called them adulteresses. God is the husband and the church or Israel under the old covenant was the wife. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God doesn't want your inner person to be pulled away from loyalty to him. Satan wants your inner person to be pulled away from loyalty to God and to believe in the doctrine of demons. If I'm going to be saved from this perverse generation, I need to open my eyes. And I need to see it for what it is. I don't need to just joke about it. I don't need to trivialize it and just think, well, this, this is something that's not really going to affect me because it can. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, you have to appreciate the sentiment of the apostle Peter when he urged those to whom he wrote as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Be saved from this perverse generation. But not only be saved from it, 
But we have an obligation, not just to abstain, not just to remove ourselves and to pull ourselves out from under the influence of worldly thinking, but we have, we have a responsibility to take the next step and to make the world, to make the culture of which we are a part better. That's what God calls us to do through the gospel. It's not just being saved from our sins, but we're saved to be lights. We're saved to be salt. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, when Paul was writing about working out our salvation, he then said in verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of, of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. When you see that expression, prove yourselves. Again, the marginal rendering in the New American Standard is become. Become blameless and innocent. Show yourself to be above reproach in the midst. You're not going to change the, the culture insofar as the, the macro culture is concerned. It's only your microculture. It's the culture that's immediately around you. It's the people who can come under your sphere of influence. They are the ones that you can change. You don't have influence upon those in California. You don't have influence upon those in Chicago or those in Washington, D.C. But you do have influence upon your children, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers fellow students, you have influence with them. Make that world a better place. In 1 Peter chapter 2, again, we looked at the, a verse earlier in this particular chapter. Notice the context in 1 Peter chapter 2, first, verse 9 first. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies. Here's the calling. Here's the purpose. The excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 12, he writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And they will do that if through your influence they change. Be saved from this perverse generation, but seek to make this generation, insofar as it is within your sphere of influence, seek to make it better. And let's talk also as we bring this lesson to a close, when Peter told them, be saved from this perverse generation, that didn't mean that they were then to be unconcerned about that perverse generation. If that perverse generation was a reference to the Jews there on the day of Pentecost, if it was a reference to those who rejected Jesus and failed to exercise faith in him, even with the evidence, the fulfillment of Scripture and the miracles, if it was that generation, those apostles would spend the rest of their lives seeking to save that generation. They would spend the rest of their lives not seeking to detach themselves from that generation, but they would spend the rest of their lives seeking to reach out 
and to bring those unbelieving, to, bereave, to, to bring that corrupt, that untoward generation into the fold. John chapter 3.16. John 3.16. You remember what Jesus said. We'll look at that and we'll look at what else was said beyond that verse. When Jesus was responding to the conversation that he was having about the new birth, he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus died for the homosexual. Jesus died for the one who wants to change their gender. Jesus died for the one who has committed the act of murder in abortion. The Lord wants all to be saved. There's no magnitude of sin that's, that's greater than your own. There may be greater consequences, but sin separates from God regardless of what that sin may be. Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That was Jesus' mission. It should be ours. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We do see that. And that's really the norm. We, we look back at our, our history over the last 40 or 50 years, and, and really we're, we're just coming out of the good times. We're coming out of the exception, not the norm. You go back to the beginning of time and you read Bible history, you see that the norm was that society from generation to generation, from nation to nation, that refused to worship God, that refused to have a knowledge of God, that, that refused to give thanks to God, that refused to believe in God. And, and that lack of faith or unbelief led them to all sorts of depravity. We were living in the good times. Maybe now we're coming out of those good times. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And, and you see that. And those who embrace homosexuality and transgenderism and, and, and would endorse abortion, they don't want to hear what the Bible says. All that does is expose their evil. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. My responsibility is to be saved from the perverse generation, to make this world a better place to live, but also to save that perverse generation. Peter would have, on that day of Pentecost, every Jew to be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll close with this. Look at the church at Corinth. <laughs> Look at the church at Corinth. Who were they? What was their background? When you went into that congregation, I want you to think about the person that just might have been sitting next to you during a public worship assembly. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Can you imagine how many different support groups they could have had? Monday night, it's the fornication support group. Tuesday night, it's the idolatry support group. Wednesday night, it's the adultery support group. Thursday night, it's the effeminate support group. And we're going to say Friday night for the homosexuals. I know that it seems like I'm making light of that, but that, that was the reality of that congregation. You could have been sitting beside a person singing songs of praise to God who some time ago was a practicing homosexual. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a conversation with a gay person? I, I don't mean the, the waiter at the local restaurant telling him what you want. I'm talking about a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a homosexual about their condition. Have you ever had that conversation? I have. And I'll be the first to admit it was awkward. I sat in a, in a room once with a man who was a Christian. And he told me, he told me, I have a problem. I, I am attracted to other men. That was a tough conversation. But you know what? I felt for it. Think about the courage it took to admit that. He didn't want to be that. He didn't want to be in that situation. He, he was reaching out. I think we err in our thinking when we think that everyone who is a homosexual everyone who is effeminate and has a desire to be the opposite gender and everyone who has ever been guilty of abortion. I think we err in our thinking when we think that those individuals don't want a better life. That they don't want to be saved. That they don't want to do better. That they're not looking for someone who will bring that light that will pull them out of that world of darkness. I need to be praying. I don't need to be a homophobia. I don't need to have homophobia. I need to be reaching out. And I need to be showing the same love for them that God showed for me. And that God showed for them in the death of his son on the cross. Jesus paid the price for everyone. Let's go to God now in prayer.